Dog Entrepreneur Podcast, where we bring good business to light. So I have a request before you listen to this episode. Pause it right before you're about to listen to this playback and go get your work boots because shit's about to get deep today. On this episode, we will discuss topics like not putting clients on the defensive, how to make them open up with comedy versus being too serious, and working through common problems for a lot of business owners out there, the dreaded people-pleasing tendency. Today, I have the one and only J.P. Sears, famed internet personality, and more seriously, an emotional healing coach who works with individuals to guide them through the healing of deep emotional wounds. In our interview, he shares some of his strategies for where to begin with clients, listening and learning from their side of the story, and getting clients to identify the consequences of changing or not changing. That's a biggie, and he goes into great detail. I can't wait any longer. Let's meet JP. Awesome. JP, thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us today. I really appreciate your time. Um, is today your day of a, a lot of phone calls, or what was your day like today? Great question. Well, first off, I'm incredibly grateful that you'd invite me on your uh, wonderful offering to the world, Gary. I'm yeah thrilled to be talking with you. Yeah, my day today, I've had, uh, I believe, three client sessions and then a previous interview as well. Uh, so it's definitely been a lot of, you know, on Skype uh, kind of thing. Um, so yeah, just pretending like I can connect with people on different sides of the world. That's amazing. Technology is amazing. So I've, I'm on your YouTube channel right now, and it seems like maybe about three years ago you started putting out content. Is that when you started using YouTube? Yeah, it was. Yeah, just about three years ago, and at that time it was all sincere, serious videos. Um, then probably about a year and a half into that, I guess coming up on two years ago, uh, was when I started putting out comedy videos in addition to the sincere and kind of straightforward life advice type videos. Which video did you get the most backlash from when you started the ultra spiritual videos? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, uh, backlash is fun actually. It's, you know, uh, calm seas make lousy sailors, as they say. So I think backlash is uh, a good thing when there's not maliciousness uh, with it. Uh, so instead of me just creating rationalizations, let me actually answer your question. I think the the one with the most backlash has been if meat eaters acted like vegans. From from which side is it? Is it from meat eaters or vegans or just? And my favorite messages that I've gotten from that video are the ones that say, JP, I watched the Meat Eaters Acting Like Vegans video. I'm confused. Are you against meat eaters or are you against vegans in that video? <laughs> that just amuses me. I get amused when people are confused uh, by what I uh, put out. And, um, and, of course, I'm not against anybody in the video. I'm for people, period. Uh, the only thing I'm highlighting is uh, dogma, self-righteousness, judgment and intolerances that are part of the human condition that we tend to express in uh, noble looking hiding spots. So, but you know, uh, I think the most backlash uh, comes from the vegan side of the coin. 
and uh, also a lot of uh, people who practice veganism really celebrating the video and having a lot of levity from it as well. So, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't know who the heck it was. At some point, sometimes someone said, uh, the surest path to failure is to try to please everyone all of the time. Um, knowing you can't please anybody all of the time, I believe is really a, a consequence that we have to be willing to accept in order to express our gifts and uh, voice our voice. And it seems like you've chose comedy to kind of deal with some of these tougher topics. You didn't necessarily go there. I mean, what was there something that spun it for you to said, hey, I think I should start doing this and see how people respond? Well, in hindsight, I'm able to sound a lot more intelligent than I actually am. Feel free. You know, in, in reality, you know, when I'm in the present moment, I'm just the blind man stumbling along and somehow I find my way. So when I started the comedy videos, really it was a mindset saying like, uh, you know, I have a sense of humor. I always have. I've been hiding it from the world, at least on video. So yeah, let me let me do videos that are let me try a video or two that are kind of of a comedic interface. But now in hindsight, I can absolutely see kind of like what your question's alluding to. It's like, okay, wow, that that was a smart strategy. Um, I don't know if it actually was because it wasn't a strategy. It's just what I happened to do. But yeah, I do believe that when you speak, you, when you speak about something that's a real issue for people, but you speak about it in a serious way, my experience is that people tend to get defensive, and I do too. It's part of how we maintain the center of gravity in our psyche. We don't want things to change. Just like if someone came up and started to progressively push on your shoulder, your body would start to contract and resist so that you don't lose your center of gravity. Well, in my experience is the same thing happens in our psyche. And in our psyche, it doesn't necessarily mean that that serves our greater good all the time, but it's what we do when we're in a reactive state. So when we're speaking information to someone like, okay, here's my belief on this idea and here's some dogma that we need to look at, um, it's very easy to get defensive. However, that same perspective spoken through the language of humor typically has a very different uh, reaction in the psyche, meaning, mostly meaning our psyches don't react in defensiveness. You know, it's packaged in a, you know, humor is much less of a threatening uh, message so that uh, a message we otherwise would have completely rejected before we had any chance to consider it, it tends to get in deeper and we tend to consider it with more meaning uh, when it's brought in with humor because our psyche, our mind, our heart isn't in a defensive state when it comes in. So that's what I've learned in hindsight and that's kind of what I'm uh, aware of as I'm navigating the present and the future of uh, using my comedy videos. And I am biased. Uh, I, I do believe that my comedy videos at least have the intention of delivering uh, a deeper, more meaningful message beneath just the surface entertainment of them. Yeah. And, and the authenticity, I think, is really the good strategy. Ultimately, you said in the beginning that you were keeping your personality 
out of it. Now it's in there and then look at the attention you're getting. You know, you're being authentic and that's what I've learned from your videos too is that that's what attracts. I mean, when people can look yeah. at you and say, hey, we're similar and I feel that you're being honest about this, then, you know, that's true connection. So I, that's, uh, that's, that's fascinating how you just kind of stumbled upon that with, with the comedy. Yeah, well, it, it's been a great blessing. I think there's probably been a lot of grace involved. And I love your reflection about the lesson of authenticity. I agree. I, I really do agree. It's kind of like, okay, being authentic, you know, this whole experience with the videos, it, it maybe teaches me that being authentic is maybe the only, it's one of the most powerful ways, maybe the only way to truly be available for connection. And with the videos, there's, you know, a lot of connection happening in my life because of them. A lot of people, um, very blessed to say a wide audience watching them. And then I think uh, another kind of similar lesson is seeing how there's uh, a big audience valuing my videos because I'm being authentic. That helps teach me that, yeah, it's okay for me to value myself when I'm being authentic. In other words, when I'm just being me is when I can really value myself, which is a little bit paradoxical because I think typically at least myself and maybe some other people, we tend to try to do valuable things in order to then value ourselves. But I think the challenge is when we're doing valuable things, productivity things, you know, things that our mind tells us, I have to do this in order to be valuable, in order to matter in the world. Uh, we're we're essentially trying to value something that is relatively valueless compared to who we really are. So to me, being authentic, being the most powerful way we can value ourselves from the inside and probably outside too, it's a great lesson. Totally. That's a something I've really been working on. Like I said in the, when we were chit-chatting in the beginning, I've really worked on the last month two months really putting out content that instead of um, instead of telling people about themselves what they're doing I'm just talking about me and the yeah. things that I've gone through and and how I can kind of validate these things that I'm talking about like you you saying that you're being super authentic has brought you this um, this grace of people coming into your life being able to share that makes it way easier to be able to tell somebody else to do the same thing or to, or not tell them to do the same thing but explain that there's value because you've done it and I think there's a lot of power in that and um, being being able to actually have done it mm. yeah I I agree and and I also don't want to be delusional enough to try to uh wear the facade that says I'm always authentic. It's like, hell no. I've still got plenty of challenges and plenty of times where I give myself away and try to become someone who I'm not in order to meet expectations or escape myself. Um, yet I also do have moments of time where it, it at least feels like I'm being authentic. I might just be delusional as hell and maybe one of my facades is the facade of authenticity and i'm just completely lost it's the journey though it's the journey yeah so let's wrap it all back up into dogs because that's kind of mm. what we're here for um i saw i i hear periodically you do have a dog is it zephyr 
Absolutely, Zephyr. He is his twelfth uh, birthday is coming up here uh, within the next week. I think five days from now. Wow. Now you he was ill, right? He had a, like a little spout of ill health recently. Yeah. So the, the quick backstory on that: he's a dachshund, a wiener dog, and you know, they, if you don't know, I'm sure you do, but. Lovely listeners, if you don't know, dachshunds are predisposed to back issues. They have such a long spine and therefore relatively less spinal support um, per you know unit of uh, dog tissue. So about five years ago, he had a back surgery. He had a herniated disc, and it was a you know a pretty much an emergency situation. But it I. The, the surgery has such a high success rate when you catch it quick enough that I'm like, yes, let's do that. So hard times, Zephyr made a full recovery. And, and you know, since then, every few months, every six months, uh, give or take, he'll have a little episode of back pain reoccurrence, nothing really dramatic. But this, uh, this past weekend, or I guess maybe almost two weeks ago at this point, I was traveling back home. I was uh, out of town uh, doing some speaking, and I was in the Denver airport. I live in Charleston, South Carolina, so I was in the Denver airport and got a call from uh, my two great friends, husband and wife team, who were staying at my place watching Zephyr, saying Zephyr is not in a good way. He's yelping and you know, displaying the classic in pain symptoms. So, yeah, they took him to the vet, and it was a really rough day for the little guy. And it, I always get scared to death. I mean, my heart drops, and I get scared. Well, is is he going to come out of it, or will I have to put him to sleep? Has he reached a point of no return with his back? You know, I really catastrophize. I'm, I'm not proud that I do it, yet I do, and it really pulls on the strings of my heart. So yeah, I'm, I found a little corner in the, on the floor of the Denver airport and I'm just crying my eyes out. And, but he, by the next morning, he really turned a corner and he's been amazing since. And I've been, um, I've three appointments so far of taking him into, we have a holistic vet pretty close to us. They do cold laser therapy on his spine to help the tissues regenerate and not just heal, but regenerate as much as possible. So, um, and I have, um, have a veterinary acupuncture done on him. So yeah, I, I digress. He did have a challenge, uh, yeah. uh recently. And these, these, amazing things that we have now for our dogs i've done acupuncture i've done the lasers i mean they're just amazing the the, the yeah. different array of services we can offer them now so that's good he's he's uh feeling better i'm glad that you're feeling better i'm it's a tough thing to go through yeah. uh, and that kind of leads into one of the things i i wanted to talk to you i mean you're you you've had him through this journey of of going into you know spiritual um would you call it like counseling or how, how do you, what, what do you call your clients? Are they clients or are they? Yeah, I call them clients and I operate under just the general umbrella of a coach, an emotional healing coach. What do you think people, like the, the, the problems that people are having with their dogs, how has that been amplified in the last, I'd say 10 years since I've been with dogs? I mean, are we... Are we humanizing them more? I mean, do you, are we acting out our, I mean, do you have any opinion on this? I'm just, 
really been fascinating to, to dig into your brain of you're walking your dog with Zephyr and as you're watching people with their animals. Are you looking at them and can you tell what's happening in that relationship? Well, yeah, you know, uh, I do have my opinions and I think um, dogs are amazing. First off, I think there's a reason why dog is God spelled forward. I think dogs are a miraculous doorway into understanding ourselves at a deeper level. And I think uh, in a very oversimplified way, I think dogs are biofeedback uh, of how we are on the inside. So, you know, if we're deeply content inside and peaceful in any given moment or as our uh, the propensity of our state of being, then I think our dogs typically reflect that. And then dogs with behavioral issues, dogs that are exhibiting anxiety or jumping all over or controlling their owner, I think they're reflecting to the owner how the owner is. Um, and I think it's inc- it's not even similar. I think it is exactly the same as within the family where children will typically become extensions of the parents. And the negative, there's a bright side to that. It's part of how we learn and and accept the gifts that our parents have. Uh, And the shadow side of that, my opinion, is that typically what the parents are unaware of about themselves, what they suppress, what they repress, the children tend to act out. That can be behavioral issues. It can be depression. It can be, you know, really critical self-talk. It can be anxiety. It can be attention deficit disorder. Um, it, eating disorders are huge, huge. So uh, anyway, I think all of life is very connected. And I think within our families, there's so much connection that happens between people that we pretend isn't there because we can't see it with our five senses or experience it with our five senses but I think there is such a connection. I think kids are the biofeedback of how the family is connected or disconnected. And then I think within the beautiful, miraculous mind, heart, and psyche of the individual, I think dogs are then the biofeedback to that, almost like the what children are to a family. I think a dog is to the individual um, or to the family, I mean, uh, if it's a family dog. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. And one of the things I was curious about, so one, one of the things I try to do with this podcast is I try to take people that aren't in the dog world and I try to put them in, under the umbrella of now them owning a dog business. So JP now is a dog trainer with, with the skills psychologically, right, to, to, to go in and look at this. Because, I mean, I have a dog here right now who is a nightmare when his mom is here. And as Mm -hmm. soon as she leaves, she's fine. So to me, that shows me this is an environmental problem and the behaviors are learned around mom. Like you were saying, Mm -hmm. he's displaying the behaviors that mom has taught him. So one of the things I get kind of fired up about in my in my industry is there's so much time spent training the dog but I find so much time when the dog's removed from the environment he's able to act the way he wants. So how how would you, so you get a dog, you realize, okay, this dog is a pretty simple dog. He, he wants to follow. They're just not giving him directions. How, yeah. how, how would you start to 
open up the flow of conversation because a, a lot of times we have to get intimate here. I mean, we, we see these, we see issues with marriage, we see intru, um, issues with kids or work-life balance, all these things that these people are having and, and they want this goal with their dog. What are some of the things you use to start to kind of lower the, the, the wall down and start to, I mean, you do it with your clients. How do you open the conversations up? Mm. Yeah, you know, typically in some form or another, the the conversation gets opened up, and I think it would uh, apply to dogs and dog owners, is what's the problem uh, that you've been experiencing, um, and what do you want to change about it? You know, like, okay, what's the problem? How is the problem a problem for you? And how would you like to see this changed? And... And then typically early in conversations as people share their stories and their desires for uh, what kind of meaningful change and um, growth they'd like to experience, I also like to ask, what are the consequences of that growth? What are the consequences of that positive change that you're talking about? Because if you're stuck in a place I do believe, you know, if we've been stuck in a place, I do believe it's been meeting one of our needs, if not more. Probably not functionally, but it's part of us ne- meeting our needs in, um, in one form or another, even if it's uh, at the expense of self-destruction. So I think we have to realize that when we're creating change, uh, part of us is celebrating that change that we desire. And there's another part of us that is losing some sense of comfort or stability. And that's probably a great thing, just like it's great to take the pacifier away from the child when they're two or three or four, whatever the age is, they'll grieve it, but it's still good to help the child move on so they can grow. So, you know, I think with a, in a relationship with a dog and a dog owner, if there's a problem, a behavioral issue, I think we, it, it would be wise to consider there's some sort of comfort need being met here. And let's take a look at that because if you're consciously or unconsciously not willing to give up that sense of comfort, then uh, we have a challenge here. So we need to come to terms with that. Um, so yeah, and, and at this point, Gary, I have uh, I have no idea if I'm actually speaking to your question no. or not. Perfect. I mean, everything you're saying is exactly w- what I was looking for. So you, you, you're going to talk about it. You're going to explain that there is consequences. And I think when people hear consequences, sometimes they think bad, but there's good and bad. You know, if you're, yeah. if you're um, fearful of your dog doing something, but the consequence could be going to meet your best friend for lunch with their dog, and that's yeah. what you're really looking for, then, you know, would, would, do you have them start to, is that where you start to lead the conversation, or would you, or does it depend on the person, or, or would you start to maybe look at some of the things that they might be holding on to and trying to get an idea of um, why these are powerful? Where, where, did they, where did they start to put these unhealthy behaviors where, healthy ones could be, you know, maybe petting the dog when you could be talking to your husband or, you know, you know, those little, those little things that we get sidetracked in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's different for every person, but ultimately, um, under, you know, becoming a curious student of the individual, 
uh, in learning, like, why is this pattern here? What part of you did it serve well? And when did you uh, learn to use this inherently unstable act and behavior as a source of stability in your life. So actually, when I look at my relationship with my beloved Zephyr, I think one of the things that I do that disserves him is I over-affection him, I over-spoil him, um, I, you know, in, and I typically justify it with, you know, I, I, I want to show him love, I want to show him affection at all costs. And I think when I look deeper into my own self, I find an unmet need of mine that I'm projecting onto Zephyr. And, you know, Zephyr's not a human. He's a dog. And, you know, appropriately meeting a dog's needs is similar but also has some differences uh, relative to a human psyche. So I start to realize, like, okay, there's a part of me that has an inner void of affection, because I think when as a child, I became relatively defended and found a sense of strength and stability by denying, um, receiving support. I actually became a source of support for my mother and father where I did the old, let me be the parent to my parents routine. Didn't know I was doing it at the time, but I sure as hell was. So there's a part of me that absolutely has an inner void of affection and needs to really receive but when I'm not in a vulnerable state, transparent, and able to connect with that, I project it onto Zephyr. So it's like what part of me needs, I project that onto Zephyr, and I try to give that to him. But it's what I need, not necessarily what Zephyr needs. So part of the disservice is Zephyr might not get the boundaries that he needs. He might not get the, you know, the tasks that he needs. He might not get to be as much of a pack member that he needs when I'm essentially worshiping him as the king, as the leader, as a way of me feeling like I'm, you know, giving him the affection that he doesn't need, but I need, uh, if that makes any sense. Totally. Absolutely. One of the things I, I preach with my clients is um, it's more powerful or the, the, the problems that I've seen with people, these are dogs that have problems, you know, probably mm -hmm. not Zephyr, who's a social dog. Um, but the most important thing your dog needs to know is that you don't like something. So if mm -hmm. you have a dog that you can take anywhere, most likely he knows what you don't like. And if he doesn't, mm. and if he does something that you don't like, you can tell him. So then you don't have to be worried about taking your dog to a new spot because you have a relationship. A lot of people over affection their dog. And then the dog gets now split between the affection part that we've taught them. But then also now when we don't like something, we've also got to remember that we did the affection part. So yeah. I really, when people are having problems with their dogs, that's the number one thing I tell people to focus on. But if you, if your dog has no problems, then you must be doing a good job. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's what I tell people. If, if he's perfect in your eyes, then who else's opinion matters? I mean, he's, it's like it doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, definitely in my eyes, Zephyr can do no wrong. But, you know, the eye of the beholder, be careful because I'm not sure how functional I actually am. Awesome. So one of the things you had went back. I'm going to go back just a little bit, like in comedy, yeah. whatever they call that, a back something whatever but you had talked about doing things to feel valuable 
And one of the things I see a lot in the pet sitter, dog walker business, um, also some of the other businesses, um, grooming and pet stores, is we go over the top for clients by saying yes too much and then penalize them for, for you know, we should have said no. Maybe we get passive aggressive or things like that. Yeah. Do, you, do you find, uh, h- how do you deal with that, with being okay with saying no? I, I struggled with it in the yeah. beginning of my pet sitting business where I wanted to say yes to everybody because I was trying to build a business and I wanted everybody to think I was the best guy. But then at the same time, you know, I was up really early, seven days a week at bed. My wife was wanting me to do things. I got 11 dogs in my dining room on Thanksgiving day. I mean, it just, it, it gets a little crazy. Do you, do you have any suggestions for things on that or reasons? Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, it is worth saying no. It is not comfortable it is challenging, you know, my, this past year, by the way, has been a huge kind of rite of passage where I'm now able to say no. Uh, whereas before I would completely give myself away, I would play the role of the people pleaser, say yes, because part of me has this uh, goofy program inside that says people won't like me unless I become what they want me to be. And of course, I'm not going to be doing that if I'm saying no. Uh, so just like you said, I would build up resentment and I, I wouldn't express it directly to them because I'm a people pleaser. I would misdirect it and you know, carry it around as stress and tightness in my body. And then I just look at my schedule and start to resent what I see on there because I am, you know, I'd look at my schedule and my schedule is a documentation of me giving myself away. That doesn't feel good. It's prostituting myself. It's betraying myself really. Um, it's not respecting my boundaries and my needs. So apparently I did that for enough time that uh, it became worth the fear of learning to say no to people um, and not being a people pleaser. And I do believe that creates sustainability where I can serve people better long term way better, way more sustainable than if I'm saying yes to everything. Um, And so, you know, my thought would be, don't wait until it doesn't feel scary in order to say no, because I think that'll be mean we're waiting forever. But I would dare say you are worth it uh, in order to, you're worth experiencing the fear and whatever self-talk comes up in you when you think of saying no and maybe you catastrophize like me like well this person will never want to talk to me again you know my business will definitely fail like overnight if I say no to this and we catastrophize so we have that fear inside of us doesn't mean it's going to come true it just means we have that fear so you are worth experiencing that fear in order to honor yourself but trying to avoid that fear is exactly that it's avoidance and it's actually avoidance of your true self and I think that is very, very um, stressful inside of us, especially when that's kind of like our modus operandi. And then the last thing I would um, say on that is I think it's helpful to therapeutically dramatize. So it's kind of like, okay, what are the stresses that show up for you? And like what suffering, honestly, do you have uh, as a result of your inability to say no? And you saying yes all the time. What are your sufferings? And then just dramatize it. If this doesn't change for five years, 
what will it be like then? And if that doesn't change, what will that be like in 10 years? So that we can actually help kind of pierce the illusion of time to connect with a relative rock bottom so that we can really like realize like eventually this would kill me. I mean, it kind of boils down to that eventually when we start to dramatize and dramatize. So eventually this would kill me metaphorically or literally. And that's a rock bottom. When we can connect with that rock bottom, that pain of smashing into the metaphoric rock bottom, that is a stimulus for change. Typically, we're, you know, our dysfunctions, from my point of view, are typically set up in order to avoid pain. Ironically, the avoidance of pain eventually creates pain. So when we can either experience it in our life or preferably go there in our imagination and get to a level of pain where avoiding the pain now costs us more pain than the original pain uh, has that we've been avoiding. So now it makes it worth experiencing the original pain, the authentic pain of what it means to say no to somebody. It's scary. That's painful. Uh, I'm afraid they won't like me. Well, that's painful. It's shame. There's a lot of pain involved. But we need to hit our rock bottom, preferably again through our imagination, so that we're then motivated to directly process that pain rather than keep creating piles and piles and piles of side pain that's a result of avoiding the original pain. Do you, do you work with entrepreneurs in particular or do you or, or do you just happen to have clients? I mean, is that something that you go after? Because I think this information is so important because people that put themselves out there, they, they need to know where they're coming from, what to you know, what to do when they, when they do get backlash and to understand the, you know, the context of where those people are coming from is, do you, do you have entrepreneurial clients or? Yeah, I I do. It's by no means all of my clients, Mm -hmm. but uh, certainly a um, respectable population. Actually, I, I, now that I think about it, it's interesting how the majority, and I don't know what I mean by majority, maybe (laughs) 50%, maybe somewhere about there my clients do tend to be of entrepreneurial blood as opposed to sort of the go work for someone else kind of thing. Um, I don't go seek that out deliberately. I just kind of, you know, I'm open for business and whoever uh, purchases sessions with me is fine with me. So, but yeah, I am privileged to get to work with a fair few entrepreneurs. Do, do you find that, that the problems they have, are they similar? I mean, is it, fulfilling customers? Is it dealing with putting yourself out there? I mean, do they have similar um, mountains that they're trying to climb emotionally? Or do you see any patterns? Yeah, you know, for the entrepreneurs that are in their early stages of their entrepreneurial career, there tends to be a pattern of self-worth that comes up. You know, and that's typically reflected through people reporting, man, you know, I'm struggling in my business, you know, getting customers and, you know, that that kind of struggle that's very common, doesn't happen with everybody, but it's very common. So there's a lot of reflection there about their self-worth and unresolved issues they carry in their, you know, their mind and heart that have to do with their self-worth. Uh, uh, pain, wounding they've been through that uh, has taught them you are not worthy. And then their uh, essentially drought of revenue in their business is a way that 
validates their lack of self-worth. And ironically, it's a fingerprint. It's a clue. The lack of money, you know, when people realize like, okay, I'm blocked here. I don't know what's going on. I'm blocked. Let me talk to this weirdo redhead JP, see if we can discover what's going on underneath (laughs) the surface. You know, the problem is never a problem. The problem isn't, it's not the enemy either. It's the friend. It's the clue that points to the deeper problem that we can't see. So the problem of, oh, money's not coming in. I'm doing all the right things, but it's not coming in. What's the deal? Thank God it's not coming in because it's teaching you. It's point. It's a fingerprint. It's pointing you to something deeper in you, uh, your heart that needs to be addressed. And how would you ever have the awareness to go into your heart and look at your self-worth? Look at how you value yourself or devalue yourself. Look at how you believe your place in the world is uh, assuming a posture of worthlessness. How would you ever uh, seek to find that and heal that and therefore get the resources from those brilliant parts of you if you didn't have this challenge in your business? So I do think that you know, being an entrepreneur, it has a level of intensity that working in a normal business, working for someone else doesn't have. I think for the most part, and I'm generalizing here, for the most part, I believe it's quote unquote safer to work for someone else. So there's not that much intensity. And the intensity of the reward, therefore, is probably not as uh, intense. But the intensity of self-reflection is there. You know, the, I think when we jump into an entrepreneurial realm, it puts us under a magnifying glass where we get to see ourselves better because of the, call it the intensities involved with uh, being an entrepreneur. And there's really no safety net underneath us. We're not working for someone else who can catch us. Um, so it can be very confronting. And I think that's when when an entrepreneur has... Uh, you know, their eyes on the literal ball game, but they also allow kind of like metaphorically their third eye to open and consider what about myself am I here to learn on this journey as I'm creating and running my business? Uh, I think those people are well served uh, in honestly what becomes lessons of the mind, heart and spirit through their entrepreneurial journey. Where can people get more of your lessons? Where, where do you like to, to send people? Yeah. yeah, you know, probably the best place is on my YouTube channel, Awaken with JP. They've got tons of videos and, you know, Facebook has got videos there too. But uh, anything Awaken with JP works. But one spot would probably be YouTube. Wonderful. I love the new Tony Robbins experience. Thank you for that. My wife and I watched that many times and sent it to many of our friends. Thought that was (laughs) very, very funny. And um, yeah, man. So thank you so much. I know you got it's Friday. Any big plans this weekend? What's happening in JP's world? Man, the JP's world. What is happening? Um, I'll be shooting some video, uh, and that's uh, man. That's going to be a fair bit of the weekend. uh, But I have fun doing what I'm doing. so there will be fun involved while I'm uh, working my craft, I guess. No doubt, I'm sure. Well, thank you so much for coming today and chatting with our audience and really, really value, 
valuable information for everybody. So thank you so much. Oh, you're incredibly welcome, Gary. And I really appreciate you having me on. I appreciate the lovely audience for paying attention to our conversation. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks, JP. Bye.